Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 80. Last episode, we heard how the Kosovo war doctor Englele had failed in his attempt at chasing the colonials out of the territory, the Albany region, and now returned to significant events in the northeast of southern Africa, a place called Zululand. By 1819, Shaka and Dingenswaya were holding sway in the area from the Tegela to the Black Umfolozi, but Zwede of the Ndwandwe still controlled the land between the Umfolozi and the Pongola rivers. The landscape had changed radically over the past 300 years as farmers cut and burned their way across the rolling hills and mountains. Vast tracts of forest and thornfelt had been converted to grassland, and the land looked what it looks like today, although there was more bush around, particularly along the river valleys. But the point is, human activity in the landscape had already mutated the felt, and yet there were still elephants around and other wild animals. The region from Pongola to the Tugela was crisscrossed and patched with human influence, scarred and thinned out from the axe blade, the hoof, and the farmyard. This was a century before colonials arrived to farm this area. But the people of this land lived with and through nature in a manner that changed with the coming of commercial farming and the heavy use of firearms. Everything depended on the leader's capacity to feed and feed off cattle, wildlife and crops. The vegetation and terrain were paramount to everyone's lives. The ideology and military system and marriage rituals were all shackled to the most important thing, the ability to generate food. The margins were small, starvation was always close. The Mteto and the Zulu, the Kwabe and the Ndwandwe, the dozens of other smaller political entities, all made their living inside the raw bush. They were all mobile. There was no attempt at building fortresses or castles. There was no distinction between wild and tamed. The bush was both a friend and a threat. It provided wood for iron smelting, monkey tails for soldiers' regalia, tusks for trade, roots for essential muti and medicine. The forests hid elephants and leopards, but were also used by the people in times of flight. They hid in these dark Zulland forests, thickly wooded inaccessible. Mountains were used for defense and the three most important resources were the fertile land for growing crops, the cattle and the people who tended both. It was unusual in warfare for a chief to adopt a scorched earth policy. All victors would prefer to have enough food available for the vanquished. The Amabuto system had been changed by Shaka as you've heard. His experiment included deliberately extending the period of military service so that he could control warfare more exactly. By 1818, Shaka was still south of where his Zulu ancestors had lived at Intlazache, but he'd formed a few major Amabuto regiments already, such as the Iziyendani. These men were feared. Hundreds formed up with their all-red shields, the Mgumanka, and their red shields spotted with white. The Mgumanka praise song rang out, that which stands threateningly in the patch of burnt grass. Shaka's next major battle was against Zwides and Dwanwe after he'd subdued the Kwabe, and by 1819 he'd formed up four more units, including the Tlangezwa, the Zibolela, the Nkobolodno, and the Imkangala. These would remain at the core of his army throughout his reign. Within these Amabuta there was a pecking order, an interrelated tight Zulu nucleus, with a ring of semi-independent chiefs around the center, chiefs such as Ngaetu. Zwides and Dwandwe were encroaching on Shaka's territory again in late 1818 or early 1819. We don't have the year as the Zulu are rather vague about this. 
In traditional stories that have been passed down since then, there are many contradictions. Even Zulu victory in this battle is debated. However, some of the other facts have been corroborated. First, Shaka decided for once that he'd attack the Ndwandwe at night during a full moon. He gathered his warriors around and gave them instructions. The warrior, Kumfia Kai Nogandaya, would be involved. I mentioned him a few podcasts back. Shaka said the Ndwandwe would be allowed to advance in the late afternoon. Then, in the dark, his warriors would use a phrase, Kisi, as a code. When they confronted the enemy, they would call out, Kisi, once. Then the reply should be, Kisi. If a man does not reply, Kisi, stab him. He will not be one of ours, said Shaka. The commander of this force was Kwana Kangalele, but Kumfia was upset. Shaka had arranged his army in what looked like reverse. He'd put the younger men at the back and the old men in front. Shaka explained it was a ruse that Kumfia would then take two Amabuto, the Tlangezwa and the Imihehe, who would provoke a fight at dusk. When the Ndwandwe attacked, they'd retreat, and as night fell, the Zulu would turn and attack. The Kisi battle is crucial and legendary in Zulu tradition, and yet we know virtually nothing about it. We don't know where it happened, nor do we know how many fighters were involved or how many died. We also don't know who won, although Zulu tradition insinuates it was their victory. The major storyline here which has been challenged is that Shaka deployed a novel military strategy to overcome the Ndwandwe. He did not. His tactics had been tried and tested, and they were the tactics of the Ntetwa already. The head and horn method, where a central force would attack and two flanking groups or Amabuta would charge around the sides. That technique was not Shaka's. That story has been made up by folks who like a good story. But he did make up the code word Kisi, and this is the only case of Shaka using a novel idea in his entire battle history. However, the other major legacy from this mysterious battle was how Komfia emerged. From then on, his role was magnified into Izibongo, or praises. One of the praises goes like this. Exploder like a flame of fire, fly of great courage. He who exclaimed at the insulting language, the means of Zuide, that was directed against Shakat, Mbelebeleni. Mbelebeleni, remember, was Shaka's former great place. Ant bear that digs a burrow in which it does not lie. Trampler across the burnt grass of the enemy, giant that raided the pondos, he who refused to be limited because he imposed no limit on himself, huge chest on which tears were shed, arm that defended the vitals, from the warriors of Mzilikazi, huge frame that was like Kranskop, fire that raged like a furnace. This was the praise poet's words that have rung out across the centuries since then, propelling the memory of Kumfia and Shaka into our present. Kumfia, after this battle, was renamed as a Zulu. He was actually a Kwabe. Zulu Ka Nogandaya, surely one of the greatest figures of Shaka's time. His campaigns against the Ndwandwe became legendary, but he also caused some problems for Shaka, this man of the Ugumanka Mbuto. He was set up in his new home on the hill of Ndondo Kasuka, near the mouth of the Tugela River, in the heart of Kwabe country. Later, he became headman in Duna at the Tlomendini Umuzi. We also know exactly what he looked like. 
He was of medium height, very dark with a barreled chest, heavy eyebrows, and apparently awe-inspiring. If Confia called you, there was trouble. Some say he had 80 wives, others that it was more like 45, but either way he was a prolific womanizer. They called him the rock that killed the hyena, the one who stands in a menacing way where the grasses burned, and that he always ate alone. There was no one else who had the rank or courage to eat with him. Needless to say, he also did not brook competition, and was quick to wipe out anyone who seemed to threaten his power amongst the Kwabe. However, there was one man he could never dislodge. Also emerging at this time was Ngayato of the Kwabe, who regarded himself as an equal of Komfia. He was the son of Kondlo, a powerful Induna during the time of Senzanga Kona of the Zulu, so he believed he was entitled to special attention. After consulting his elders, Shaka began to treat Ngayato as an important man, and was constantly using Ngayato and Komfia as foils against each other. Shaka liked to divide and rule his top lieutenants, contrary to many who think that he was always a unifier. Shaka also knew the political power of ensuring that possible competitors were always aware of each other and his own superior position above them. He made them compete for his attention. Shaka used Ngaitu and Komfia in a complicated political dance in order to ensure that Kwabe remained his vassals. As the Ndwandwe increased raiding, he drew a few Kwabe into his inner circle, particularly Mbokasi Kamombo, who was a descendant of Kwabe chief Kuzwayo. Shaka incorporated Mbokasi into his important council group, and he began to twist the genealogies to give the impression that there were one bloodline. Easier to manage everything after that, I'm sure you understand. The Zulu and the Kwabe began to claim that they had a common ancestor called Malandela, and he was placed, usefully, so far back in history that he had no gravesite nor great place. He was literally a myth that was developed to create cohesion. But the upshot of this grand social thumbsuck was that the upland Zulu and the lowland Kwabe could start calling themselves Ntungwa. They could forge a commonality, an identity that moulded them together. The big problem in history is that not everyone goes along with this kind of grand design, and Shaka never managed to totally quash some Kwabe storytelling where these significant people didn't agree with his official lines, so to speak. This has blown up in the faces of Zulu traditional leaders today after the death of King Goodwill Zuelatini, and a major dispute has developed about who exactly is next in line. To this day, there are major contradictions in genealogies and how people of this region remember those genealogies. Perhaps a DNA test or two would solve this myth. In the meantime, court cases abound. Shaka was drawing the Kwabe into his power zone. Some had left to join the Ndwandwe, others the Mtetwa. A few fled south of modern-day Durban. So Shaka's policy was to improve his military capacity and he began to persuade conquered people to join him against the major enemy, the Ndwandwe. He didn't obliterate people, he co-opted them. Their headmen paid tribute, then they were taught to be good new Zulus. As Dan Wiley points out in his book Myth of Iron, Shaka's technique is still in use. It's a strategy like the current relationship between traditional leaders and the political leaders inside South Africa's parliament of today. 
It's a parallel system where conflict can develop, and we've seen how this delicate dance can unravel. So Shaka built a famous military settlement on a hill that overlooked where I lived in the 60s and 70s and 80s in a valley called Inkwalini along the Amplatuzi River. He built a new umuzi called Gibikengu close to the Ngoya forest overlooking the Mtlatuzi Valley to the south. It's an excellent defensive position and also had a great view to the north, but was 60 kilometers southeast of where the Zulu had originated. He eventually wanted to go home, and as you'll hear, he would. The military barracks of Gibikengu was a rallying point for his regiments, or Kwabe would be summoned there before his early battles. It was also from here that Shaka began to develop rituals that would be used as part of Zulu identity, both military and social. One of these was the role of the Ikanda, the all-male barracks, which was also an establishment and included women who lived with men and their cattle and the landscape upon which it was based. It was the home of the men, their refuge, a central point to gather and chew the fat, soldiers and comrades sitting together exchanging trusted points of view. Their shield colour had been set, their skins and feathers distinguishing each. They had regimental colours and regimental songs. Then a second major ritual developed involving what has become known as war medicine. The doctrine of war medicine probably needs an entire podcast, as we know how important it was already in the Battle of Grahamstown. And it's much more complex than just calling it voodoo or black magic or the territory of witch doctors. People who use these phrases have no idea what they're talking about, I'm afraid. It's the catch-all of colonialism. Witch doctors aren't actually doctors of witches. They're more like doctors of magic. Traditional doctors built specialities. These Izinyanga were and are a fascinating group of men and women who are artisans of the soul, if you like. Men who killed the enemy in battle would wear Izikol amulets of willow pod and they would start their lives in the regiment as cadets, or a form of cadet. They would be initiated. They would have to integrate themselves into the agricultural, the sexual, and military mores. Every movement was choreographed. Before full acceptance, the newbies would have to drink milk from the udders of the chiefs or the Nkosi's cows. Then they would have to sleep on the right side of the huts, in Gagwezikulu, near the gate of the cattle enclosure. They had to drink the milk at midday and at sunset. First, the cattle would be driven into the enclosure, each regiment was in specific spots, the others below. The chief's or the king's milk container, a gourd, would be carried by those called the inkeku, who would have to whistle loudly. Each of the assembled groups would whistle back. They would shout, Zi jubikili, which means they have been parted or set apart. While the Nkosi's cattle were milked, the cadets would head to the main herd and drink directly from the cows. They would also be given the onerous task of collecting acacia thorns for the izigodlo. The thorns are notoriously long and sharp and sting like mad when they prick the skin. The thorns would be placed around the enclosure. These cadets would collect firewood. They would hoe the fields and carry the amabeli sorghum when it was harvested and thresh that as well. When dancers were called, these youngsters would be armed with nobkeris, never spears, and they would be given the lungs of the oxen to eat instead of the choicest morsels. The lead herders would be given the fat of the oxen's heart cut into small pieces. 
So the cadets would be trained for two or three years. Then they were butwat, or formally inducted, into their lifelong regiments. After the three years, their induction would take just one day, where they'd receive their regiment's cattle and then head off to their own ikanda and slaughter the cattle there. Then they would build their homestead, and from now on, these men would be allowed to eat meat other than the lungs. These ceremonies became more intricate. Certain muti would be generated for battles focused on cleansing. The march was carefully managed, and the rites were part of their fighting moors, their regimental value chain. The enemy would be fully aware that when they faced these warriors, they had graduated one of the most difficult military training facilities anywhere. One of the most important chieftainships with Mkise and their leader Zitlando Kunzad Shaka formally supporting him. There are oral stories that he killed his own brother Machu Kumbele and his whole family. Shaka was often in two minds about the Mkise and Zitlando in particular. He had good reason to be wary because Mkise were causing mayhem along the Tugela River back in 1819. To the west lived the Lamini, who complained about the actions of Zitlando's other brother, Sambela, who helped him kill Machukumbele. Sambela is described as an albino. He was quite small, but made up for what was seen as deficiencies by his compatriots by being particularly wild, and he was truly feared as a fighter. There seems to have been something unhinged about Sambela. When he had his first teenage emission, which indicates a boy has turned into a man. We would call this a wet dream, I guess. He headed off with a gang of Mkize youths and killed and ate 20 goats. Stories abound of this man breaking things, throwing around the pottery, and he was called Utlanya, ungovernable. Zitlando would restrain him, which was fortunate because Sambela at one point, around 1819, wanted to kill Shaka but was talked out of what would have been a suicide mission. Shaka, on the other hand, recognized Sambela as a useful lunatic and suggested to Zitlando that he should be placed in charge of a regiment, but the Mkizi leader was horrified. Zitlando was a more effective commander than Sambela ever could be, inheriting four Amabuta, the Uchuele, Itiatia, the Umchungu, and the Imbizi. Then he developed his own, the Udlike, the Izitlambani, the Izimportlu, and the Inkuka. Sambela, though, was chaotic, killing Mkize chieftains seemingly at a whim, and councillors wanted to do away with this Uhlanya man. However, one councillor called Bambata suggested he be given his own umuzi called Mgeneleni, where he was joined by two wise men, Mbungu and Sitlangwana, who were supposedly sent to keep him in line. But Sambela, of course, ignored their advice, killed all his cattle, and gave his people of Mgeneleni the meat, and converted all the hides into shields. There was no doubt that Sambela was born to fight, and his actions proved it. Word got around about how he could provide feasts, and he built up a substantial following. Soon, his MP killed Nomanaka Kaankongo, then Mandaba of the Vezi, then Mpongo of the Nlovo, then Magia of the Papeta, crossing the Tukela to do so. Being bloody-minded, he followed this up by killing Mziki Katoza, and then, two for one, finishing off Umkubani and Pakatwayo of Manyani. He then killed Nosongolwayo and Nombombo of the Hele, and Zisingwana of the Mguli. 
Shaka took notice, although, of course, these killings were of chieftain clans inside the Mkize and didn't directly threaten his position. It was Sambela and Zitlando who joined Shaka in some of his trickier upcoming campaigns south of the Tugela you'll hear about in a later podcast. But first, they'd be aiming at the Ndwandwe. And what happened next is for episode 81. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at deslatham. Until next, salagatli. Thank you.